Hello and welcome to the Vorthos Cast. I'm Janelli, and I'm only available in Chinese Standard. I'm Andrew Weisel, and I am only available as a BioBox promo. I'm Kerry Thomas, and I'm only available on MTG Arena exclusive. <laughs> so today we have a lot to talk about. We had some C18 reveals, Commander 8 2018, but they didn't explicitly tell us what characters are in the decks yet, although we figured some things out already. They did tell us what the decks are, but let's start with talking about what we know about how they're making the Commander decks now. The Commander decks are obviously going to be tied to Standard, or at least that has been the precedent set by C17. We had the Cat deck in there, which got fed with Amonkhet and M19. We have the Wizards deck that fed into Dominaria. We had... what other decks? The Vampire deck. Vampires and Dragons, yes. Vampires got fed by Ixalan, and Dragons got fed by pretty much everything, but exclusively M19 was the dragon set with your five Elder Dragons. So we know that there are going to be these themes going forward. What we know about these four decks is that their themes are exquisite artifacts, which ties into the historic theme of Dominaria pretty well. Nature's Vengeance, which is a lands deck focused in junk colors. Adaptive Enchantment, which is an enchantress deck. And then uh, Esper deck that focuses on the top of the library. So how exactly these get planned to connect fully into the standard sets is going to be interesting if they're able to pull it off again this time obviously the tribal was a little easier where you could just push a creature type into the world building but i'm excited at the potential for it so let's talk about what we know about these decks exquisite artifacts is a little hard because we don't know exactly who could be leading it i have a suspicion that it might be the Doretti and Sahili on Kaladesh, the new artworks we saw from the Planeswalker poster we've talked about in the past, but there's a lot of things that don't make sense about that because a lot of other Planeswalker art, well, for instance, like the Lord Windgrace art did not appear in that. Another piece of Planeswalker art that was revealed in the Commander 2018 art dump, I, I guess I can call it, <laughs> did not appear there either. So it would be weird that they showed up on the poster but the other stuff that was also created for Commander 2018 didn't? I, I, I just don't know. So, As a light recap for those of you who aren't checking product pages and stuff, we do know that the Commander 2018 decks are led by Planeswalkers and boast their arsenal as being part of the deck. So that's why we're talking about Planeswalkers in particular. For the Nature's Vengeance deck, we've already seen Lord Windgrace. We talked about Lord Windgrace last time. We even talked about him being Jund. We did. And so a Jund Lands Matter deck seems relevant. What else we saw today, though, in the art dump is, I believe, another commander for the Jund Lands deck, Nature's Vengeance, which is a character named General Varchild. If you don't know who I'm talking about, I don't blame you. She is from the Eternal Ice and the Shattered Alliance. She's specifically from the Set Alliances. She was a Kildoran general whose hatred for the Balduvians and the growing alliance between Kildor and the Balduvians had her split off a faction of military, fake her own death, and then try and stir up tensions by basically slaughtering Balduvian villages 
and making the Balduvians think it was the regular Kildorans doing it. The reason we think this is there are symbols and other things in the artwork that match up to the two printings of Varchild's Crusader, Omen of Fire, which is the only depiction of General Varchild we've ever had. She is a uh, mean-looking lady. If you look at Omen of Fire, she looks vaguely similar. Varchild's War Riders, who have symbols that appear on this new art as well. And most notably, Varchild's War Riders are riding away from a, uh, a town they set on fire. <laughs> and it looks like in this art with General Varchild, she's doing the same thing. And you see like a burning village behind her, which goes perfectly into the land destruction theme. Well, if it's land destruction. We also don't know if she would be a fully black, red, green character. Like we saw last year in the Wizards and Dragons deck, there were a bunch of other old characters printed as new commanders that didn't include all the colors of the deck, like Tygams and Tygam, who appeared <laughs> in uh, white-blue in the five-color Dragons deck and blue-black in the Grixis Wizards deck. All the Varchild cards so far are mono-red, so I wouldn't be surprised if her card is just a mono-red legendary knight who does some land thingies. <laughs> so the next deck is the Bant Enchantments-themed deck, Adaptive Enchantment. So this one, it's kind of interesting. There is a Planeswalker art that could go either way for either the Esper colors or the Bant colors. It's not really clear because it looks like it could be white, blue, black in the art and on her outfit, and there's also green in there, so it could just be green, white, blue. We'll have to see. She doesn't track to an existing character very well. It's uh, Ripley from Aliens 3, <laughs> or I guess Aliens Cubed. It's a woman with shaved hair and a bunch of floating blue masks of both people and animals around her, so it's not really clear exactly what her deal is going to be. Seems like auras to me. I've heard other people say it, like, it could be like a, a shapeshifter style thing, and whatever's on the top of your library is what she becomes, or she could create it, something like that. Slightly jumping ahead, the Esper deck deals with the top of library, so the masks could be, oh, scry a mask to the top thing, or it could be ours. I don't know, it's very confusing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This was the disappointing thing of Weekly MTG just kind of throwing up, hey, here's some art, and not saying anything about it, is now we have literally no idea what this is supposed to be. With the Adaptive Enchantment deck, we also got what is clearly a Theros god. This is the juicy one. Yeah. She is interesting because she looks like a blend of Ephara and Karamitra. She has straw for her hair. Importantly as well, she's holding a jug and pouring water out into a field. So these are two distinct motifs for Karamicha and Ephara. What we had kind of been discussing is that maybe this is the precursor god before Ephara became a thing with the polises actually setting up. I wonder if this was kind of the god of the hearth to be a god of the hearth, you'd have to be by a hearth, not out in a field. You know what I mean. The god of the homestead. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I meant homestead. I don't think it makes sense for the gods to kind of have fused on Theros as things shifted culturally within only the last year. 
being kind of a pre-urban farmstead village goddess makes sense, who then split between the urban Ephara and the rural Karametra later in Theros's history, closer to modern times. It's definitely, definitely a god, because we see the whole Nyx motif on the side of her face and her arm and in the jug and in the water. Yep. She has wheat hair. She's not like a person or an acolyte. This is a god. This is god art, full stop. Yeah, notably, she towers over the wheat field, which people, if you've ever seen a wheat field, human beings don't tower over them. (laughs) I'm excited because it is a standalone god in a supplemental product. Oh, it's going to piss so many people off. Definitely not part of a cycle. Like, there's not going to be a five-card cycle to this. There's not even going to be, like, a continuation on it. It's probably going to have its own standalone story. We just get to have a god on its own. Very cool. You know what would be really cool is if this is a similar kind of thing that happened to other gods, like, say, the twin gods, Iros and Mogus. Maybe they were one single god at one point. Iros? Iroas? Iroas. Iroas. Well, okay. (laughs) Uh, You know I'm terrible at this. What I'll also note is Adaptive Enchantment is a perfect deck for Sarah, because green, white, blue enchantments, it would be exactly her thing. Two of the lands that directly correspond to her, one is Bant Colors, the other is Sarah's Sanctum, which is a very famous Enchantment Matters card. So that would be perfect. And I should also note, Asha, which is the missing angel leader of Bant, the actual Bant, not the color alignment, who sacrificed herself to seal off... God, I'm drawing a blank. What's the name of the demon on... uh, Malfagor. Malfagor. During the Sundering. Yeah, to seal Malfagor out of Bant. She would be perfect as well, because the sigil of the empty throne is kind of representing her throne that she has vacated. It is an an enchantment that whenever you cast an enchantment, you get a 4-4 angel, which would work perfectly with Sarah. But anyway, that's just me. Yeah, Sarah has kind of been hammered down for the past year, so we're all looking forward to the card. We just aren't sure of the exact color identity when it comes to its involvement in this deck. We also got some other art in there. Uh, We We have a whole other deck to talk about. But we didn't. We don't really have anything else to talk about for it. Yeah, this is the deck is subjective reality. The Esper top of library deck, which who the hell knows what that means? Lots of scrying, probably. Future Sight. Yeah, Future Sight's great for what it's worth. Future Sight is an awesome card in Commander. You should play that in more decks. It's obscene card advantage, even if you give away a little information. It's worth it every time. I'm excited for the subjective reality. Mostly because I like them refining the theme of the deck down to a very, very kind of specific design space. And I feel like there's going to be a lot more of these in the future as we run out of broader themes. So figuring out nuanced ways to do it now will probably help explore a lot more design in the future as they keep going with these. Yep. So let's talk about some of the other art we got real quick. There is a art of a very cool-looking spider that probably isn't a legendary creature, or if it is, it's a new character, because magic is not really well-known for intelligent spiders that have their own names, like Ixana? What was the the name of the one from Innistrad? Ishkana. Ishkana. 
probably the only one we know of. and Who isn't even in the lore anywhere. <laughs> didn't actually appear in the story. There's this great art of a little girl. It's very clearly by Seb McKinnon, where she's just standing in the middle of a swamp, holding a stick, and has like a butterfly she's caught, it looks like, in this little bright magic web. Wow, uh, that's really underselling it. So they are riffs on Death's Head Hawk Moths, which are really spooky looking. The actual Death Head's Hawk Moths have a little skull shape on their abdomen. The ones in this have the skull shape on their thoraxes, on, on their butts. But uh, that's way creepier than a butterfly, Jay. Yeah, this that's true. why we had Andrew on this podcast, was just in case we got any moth art. So kind of dismissed now. Don't think there's going to be any work. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't study my wildlife fact file cards enough, so <laughs> we really depend on Andrew for the taxonomy stuff. Like I gotta that. stay That's... on brand. Yeah. <laughs> it is also vertically oriented, though. Do we want to touch on that? Did they give Seb a planeswalker, who is also a little girl, who also, by the way, has the Death's Head Hawk Moth symbol on her forehead and also has this weird veil of a, looks like a fishing net. It's so creepy. What I would say is it's not the full uh, length it would need to be, as it appears here, to be a planeswalker. What my thinking is, is it's token art. Because token hmm. art, especially like more recent token art that's vanilla, has, yeah. you know, takes up much more of the frame than regular creature art. No, I agree with that. That's very, very good observation that I didn't even consider. So what token would it be? Obviously, it would go to something really awesome. Little girl token, one half, one half. Nail it. <laughs> if it is a planeswalker, I'll go out on a limb and say, if it is, then that's very, very, very much pushing the age limit on how young we've seen anybody ignite. Um, we know Elspeth was in her early teens, probably younger. I believe there is a timeline out there, and I would have to crunch the numbers to figure out how exactly young. I think Chandra's the youngest at 11 or 12. Yeah. And then we have Domery. So this one looks younger than those. It would be said to have a, to drag an even younger child into a traumatic spark igniting experience. But who knows? So the last new art we want to talk about here is uh, more zombies. It is a <laughs> art of Innistrad zombies post Shadows over Innistrad. We know that because the Avacyn symbol in the graveyard is warped. Or just broken. It's hard to tell. That's true. That's fair. But we really don't know much else about it. It's just kind of one zombie clawing out of the ground with a bunch of other zombies kind of... Um, shambling. Shambling behind it with... The focus is very clearly on this one zombie emerging from the ground. This is how a lot of zombie art is. In supplemental products, at least, they have zombies. They throw in the Avacyn symbol, and it's like, oh, it's on Innistrad. Case closed. <laughs> That's as far as we need to go. I'm sure they, like, every time they go to Innistrad, they just order, like, ten times as much zombie art as they need, <laughs> and then just use it for the next three, four years. Fill up the slush file! No, but with zombie crawling out of the ground, it sounds like it'll be in that Jund lands deck. Be good for all the Gitrog players out there. So let's go ahead and answer a listener question today. It's a, uh, a pretty important one, because I've heard and seen people misunderstanding where the frame story for Chronicle of Bolas is taking place. So the question is, do you guys think you could do an episode on the events in the Tarkir block and where those events fit into the timeline? And what is happening on Tarkir in the M19 story set in the present story alongside the events of Dominaria? 
That one, that last one was a question. And that's from Paul at Dozer3142. And this is a question we've gotten from a couple people and have seen asked all across the internet. So we definitely wanted to devote some time to placing the events in this story because we've seen a lot of confusion about it. So the first time we see Tarkir is in actually the story that we are read for this podcast. Ugin awakes on it after first planeswalking away from Dominaria about 20,000 years ago, give or take like 50, 60 years. We don't see it again until about 1,300 years ago. So let's start with explaining the events of Tarkir. Ugin comes to Azor with a plan to kill or imprison Nicol Bolas on Ixalan. That was about 13 to 1,400 years ago. I have estimated it at about 3179 AR, Ugin comes to Azor with a plan to kill Bolas. A hundred years later, Azor goes to Ixalan, and that's right when around when we have Fate Reforged, which was 1,280 years ago, or about 3280 AR. Sarkhan appears out of nowhere. This is Sarkhan's first appearance in the story. And then the crux of Fate essentially happens. It is when uh, Bolas appears and kills Ugin, we learned from the Ixalan story that the reason that Bolas appeared randomly to kill Ugin was because he discovered Ugin's plan thanks to Azor being a little too talkative. He's got a big mouth. <laughs> Braggart of an asshole. We should note Yasova was involved with that. She meets Sarkhan and they essentially go to where the battle takes place together. Yasova turns the dragons of Tarkir against Ugin and turns the tide of battle, but because Sarkhan is there, he cocoons Ugin with a piece of Zendikar Hedron and then disappears again. Yasova basically learns his name, learns that he was a planeswalker, showed up out of nowhere, and saved Ugin, and kept that information to herself. 1,278 years ago, in about 3282 AR, a few years after the dragon storms grew out of control, the remaining clans and leaders gathered together to decide what to do about the dragons and possibly ally themselves with each other. They were betrayed by a leader who had already pledged himself to one of the dragons, to Silimgar specifically. Poor little banana boy. <laughs> yeah. The summit was attacked by a couple allied dragon clans. Shu Yun, the Jeskai leader at the time, sacrifices himself to Ojitai to save his people. Most of their way of life was preserved thanks to Shu Yun's sacrifice. The only thing that was forbidden was the Ghostfire Warriors, the warriors who had killed dragons, were had to be put to death. That's important for today's story. What happens is that all the clans end up deciding that they can't fight the dragons, so they join up, and this is where the big timeline split is. And instead of having the wedge-colored clans, we now have the two-colored dragon clans that lead to modern Tarkir. No more humanoid clans, we're ruled by dragons now. 18 years after Fate Reforged, or about 16 years after Confall, which was the event where all those cons got together and were betrayed and everything finally turned to the dragon clans, that's when Core 2019 story, the Chronicle of Bolas's frame story, takes place. That's when Yasova receives the summons to go to Ugin's grave, and that's the story we've been following. So that's 18 years after Fate Reforged, and 1,262 years ago, or 3298 AR. 
Fast forward to six years ago, which is 4,554 AR. That's when Sarkon arrives on Alara. That's the first time we've heard of him. About three to four years ago is when Alara Unbroken happens. Sarkon pledges himself to Bolas. He gets sent to Zendikar, where he becomes Sarkon the Mad because Ugin's spirit has appeared to him. Ugin's spirit leads him back to Tarkir about one year ago, and that is when Khans of Tarkir takes place, but that timeline didn't really happen. So that is actually when Dragons of Tarkir takes place. Sarkhan reappears after what he did 1,280 years ago. Ugin's freed from his cocoon by Sorin. Sarkhan meets up with the new version of Narset, and Ugin and Sarkhan finally meet, and Ugin has no memory of his time as a spirit appearing to Sarkhan or the time travel shenanigans that went on. Which is probably for the best. He wasn't a very, very kind spirit to Sarkhan in any sense. This is true. That brings us to today's story, Chronicle of Bolus, Whispers of Treachery. So the frame story picks up after Yasova's little hunting band discovers that Tai Jin was a ghostfire warrior. Yasova's unhappy about this because she believes that it might be a trap from the Ojatai to entrap her specifically, because she was like a, a big-time leader. We also learn the saddest news that has ever been written into Magic Story, that Anchin, Yasova's saber-toothed tiger best friend, is dead, and is now her cloak. Press F to pay respects. <laughs> like, it's been 18 years, I get it. Anchin could have died from natural causes, given, you know, how Neotarka approaches their rule. It seems more likely that, that Anchin had to be killed. This is so sad. Why do you do this, wizards? Why? Why do you have kitties die of old age? I think one of my suggestions for how Anchin died is that she swallowed a penny, which is a very, fairly common way for cats to go. They're just so shiny. Because Taijin had split open that one dragon, Yasova leaves to go harvest the dragon hearts and liver. We don't really know why. Presumably they're powerful in their own right, because we've already seen in the story Ugin's blood kind of empowers some of the humans. They go hide them in the river, so who knows what the heck is going on with that. But it was mentioned, and these stories have a lot of foreshadowing, so that's a detail I'm going to pay attention to, because it seems like it'll be important later. It's uh, Chekhov's dragon hearts. <laughs> <laughs> so That guy had a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> Back in the cave, Neva who is the hunter twin, grows more and more jealous of her sister, Baisia, who is the shaman twin, as Baisia begins to share talking about like the lore of her magic with Taijin, who begins to speak of his own magical tradition to some extent. Who Naiva thinks is cute. This is true. Taijin takes off his shirt and she's like, hello. This is where you do the soft candlelit sequence with a real, real slow tracking shot that you, you rack focus from the back of Naiva's head onto Taijin's bleeding arm as she patches him up with a wet cloth. We've seen this in pretty much every action movie made ever. <laughs> it's a pretty standard trope at this point. After that moment, which is a, a concerning moment given the parallels to the Bolas-Ugin dynamic, Yosova returns and demands that Taijin finish the story 
which is also interesting because it means we're going to have to have another way this flashback story is continued to us, but we'll talk about that after. So in the flashback, chromium appears to Nickel and Ugin in the guise of a pregnant woman. Nickel is surprised because he wants to know how chromium does it, and chromium kind of acts coy about it. They have a discussion about how to deal with the dragon killers, the tribe of dragon hunters in the valley below their mother mountain. It doesn't really go well because Nickel tries to goad chromium and twist his words, and I really like chromium's quote in response to how Nickel was acting. And he says, I hear what you're doing, Nickel Bolas. You twist words to whatever shape you wish them to make, then twist them again to suit your wishes. You are the least of us, last fallen, not even a whole dragon, but only half of one, bound as you are to Ugin. Do not ever again attempt to challenge me, or you will regret it. Which was pretty great, but yeah, also very, like, very bold take. But also, it's pretty great with like the eldest reborn and how Nicol Bolas has framed himself in every story ever. <laughs> Yes, he's obviously compensating for being the fifth dragon ever born. He's the little loser dragon who has always been angry about his position in life and has channeled that anger into destroying everything around him and tearing everybody else down so that he appears as the greatest being that could ever have existed. That insult from Chromium is just so pithy and at the core of how Nicol Bolas views the rest of the world. This story has been really, really great for Bolas's characterization. It's been spot on with building Bolas into who he is. We should also note that this bodes poorly for Bolas's relations to the rest of the Elder Dragons, and we can talk about that when, when we have a little bit of speculation and discussion in the story. But it's very clear that, especially after the interaction with Palladia Moors and Vivectus Asmadi, that Bolas does not like his fellow Elder Dragons very much. We get a new war, the very first war we've ever heard about in Magic, the Dragon Killers War. The Dragon Killers, heirs of the Dragon Killer, that is, people who have killed a dragon themselves, march up the mountain to try and attack Bolas and Ugin as they're sitting there. They wait for the people to get all the way up to the mountain, and Ugin starts to hear, like, these weird whispers. And it's pretty clear he's overhearing Bolas's telepathy that he's using on the humans. I don't think it's clear that he's overhearing Bolas's telepathy, but could just be developing telepathy on his own. One of the things we've seen in these stories is that Nicol, Bolas, and Ugin both have slowly learned to hone new powers and grow in magical capacity, and all these dragons have as well. Like, this is the first time we see Chromium transforming. Arcades spent time building up this human society. Vevictus went and got a bunch of kids, apparently. We've seen them develop as characters and as, for the lack of a better word right now, wizards. So I don't think it's clear exactly what Ugin is hearing but he is starting to become aware of this mental realm that he can hear. We should also note that Ugin realizes that it has been a fairly long time for the humans. The leader of the hunting party that killed Moravia Saul is now an old man, so it's probably been maybe 
80 years. Well, no, because he was an adult already. Maybe been like 50 years since the beginning of this story. We don't get an exact time frame, but it's within a tribal human's lifetime on Dominaria. Bolas starts pitting these heirs against one another to eliminate this clan as a threat. Ugin starts to follow him and realizes, well, doesn't realize what he's doing. He doesn't like comprehend how Nicol Bolas is setting all of these heirs up against one another to slaughter each other. But one by one, Bolas has them kill one another until the very end, the two that served him best, he has kill each other and he usurps the dragon killers and takes control of them himself, which is a pretty great moment because I wasn't sure if that was actually going to happen. But it's really cool because it's like it's Bolus's first empire that he's set up and he just straight up stole it, which is how he's done it for all of the empires that we've ever seen him set up. And this is kind of a mini culmination of the things Bolus has learned so far in these four stories. He learns about running societies from Arcades. He learns about how human civilizations work. He develops his mental manipulation powers. He discovers, as he says, that humans are selfish and greedy and racked with pain and fearful, and these are all weak points that can be pushed and manipulated. This is the seed of everything Bolas has done since. Like, that's what's been so great about these stories for me is that. They are very carefully layering on character development to get to these early stages of who these dragons are that we know how they act 30,000 years later, but we're seeing how those pieces just kind of fit together. Like, we know what the final Lego set is, and now we're getting to see (laughs) the first couple bricks put together. This is like halfway through the Lego set where we kind of have a basic structure and kind of know what things are going to look like now, because now. Bolas has taken a civilization of dragon killers, turned them against each other, and come out of this whole thing as their new god. But it's also fitting revenge for the original crime they had against him, which was killing Moravia Saul. Yep. Mm-hmm. It finished off all the people who were dragon killers, or heirs to the dragon killers, and now he gets to run everything. Yep, now he gets his own human army of people who know how to kill dragons. Yep. And have turned their dragon wor- uh, their dragon killing reverence to dragon worship, but there's a really great line from Ugin as he realizes what Bolas has done, where he goes, "What are you doing?" I cried. "This isn't what you learned from Arcades. You were the chosen one." And Bolas replies, "Of course, it's what I learned from Arcades." He said, turning to look at me, "I hate you." I'm sorry, I, I, I think I got my... Um... You cut off the part at the beginning um, where Chromium says I have the high ground. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> also the part where Bolas says that he hates sand. Oh yeah, Bolas really hates sand. <laughs> but no, it's just, a, in all seriousness, it's a, it's a really great quote where he goes, of course that's what I learned from Arcades. And Uyun realizes, oh, he wasn't learning statecraft to be benevolent. He was learning how to rule. Right, and I, and I think this is, again, shows how, put in the same situation, Bolas and Ugin use information so differently. So Bolas absorbs all this statementship from Arcades, and what he learns from it is how to manipulate things to his own advantage. 
And what Ugin learns from things is that the world is so big and wondrous and there's so many things out there and there's always new stuff to learn and we can watch and that's exciting and this stuff happens and that's great. It's like the total difference of their character is just put through so much nuance in every situation in these stories and it's been really fun to read. What is another great moment is as this all dawns on Ugin, the pure like existential horror of realizing how badly Bolas had been playing him is what causes his spark to finally ignite. So I should say finally, like 50. <laughs> He's Right now he is the, it's like 50 years later. Right now, so we know Ugin is the oldest known planeswalker ever because his spark ignited first. I just want to read the quote because it's so, like, brutally tragic, where Ugin, in his narration, goes, No, it was worse than even that. He wanted to use me for his own ends because he had never truly cared for me at all. The bond we shared, the trust we held in each other, it was empty, broken, false. A harsh, hot spark burst in my heart and in my head. My flesh burned as if incinerated and charred. And then, like, he reappears in the blind eternities and can't really make sense of it. That's because there's nothing to make sense of. Exactly. And so as what often happened, especially with old walkers, is he visualized it as a smooth, still pond. Although I'm not sure he did, because one of the thoughts I initially had when I read how he described this smooth, still lake where everything was perfectly reflective, I was thinking of the meditation realm. Because he yep. was talking about how Teju Ki, the mystic master, could send her mind to like other places. And the one thing you can do if you know how to meditate properly is access the meditation realm on Dominaria because it was kind of like a pocket realm on Dominaria. So I wonder if Ugin planeswalked into the meditation realm first or whether this is just his visualization of the Blind Eternities. It's interesting because we know that Agairem, which was a, a little blister dimension on Ravnica, broke off to be its own plane. And we suspect the same thing happened to the Meditation Realm because now it's Bolas's Meditation Plane. So it's interesting if it's always been this kind of metaphysical bubble on Dominaria and then kind of Azugan's spark ignites. He kind of metaphysically shoots through it and sees it because then he talks about crash landing into the water but then waking up on a whole other world that we know as Tarkir. Dun dun dun. Well it's not that foreboding Jay. <laughs> so this brings up an interesting question though because Ugin's home plane had been described as Tarkir and when Ugin awakes he feels like the world is welcoming to him. I wonder if I mean, in the grand scale of Ugin's life, 50 years out of 20,000 yeah. is not very many. I'm all right with the fudging even more now than I was before. It is his home plane. He is not native to it, but it is his home plane. It's like the equivalent of baby Moses getting pushed down the river and then growing up as an Egyptian prince and yep. assumes his whole life that, you know, he's just Egyptian royalty when in fact he's this little Jewish kid. But... It doesn't have the songs like the movie Prince of Egypt. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to start humming one of the songs in the background while you talked. Oh. 
The late 90s, early 2000s were a really fascinating time where a lot of non-Disney studios did a lot of really good animations. Prince of Egypt is one of them. Anastasia was uh, by Fox, and then that was another one. I don't know why studios don't do that anymore, but as I say that, I realize the answer is because Disney bought up all those studios. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention is he felt like the world itself was welcoming to him, so I wonder if the world soul itself welcomed Ugin, because one of the big theories about Ugin was that he himself was the world soul, or like an avatar of the world soul of Tarkir. That was like one of those early theories that floated around. So that's just kind of a cool note, because if the world is literally welcoming him, it does make the world his world, you know? That ends the story. It's the end of the story the Jeskai were told by Ugin that they have passed down orally from generation to generation. Taijin finishes the story, and it's back to the frame story. The Dragon Tempest finally strikes, and they all get startled as something very heavy falls outside. One of the hunting band goes to take a look, and they come back and tell Yasova she has to come check this out right away. Which is interesting, because it was like a dragon landing there. I feel like they wouldn't say, we have to check this out. We would say, we gotta hide before this thing tries to eat us. The real question here is, what's next for the frame story? I feel like whatever just dropped outside is going to end up being how the story continues. Because basically we've run out of our second narrative vessel for this backstory, the flashback story. Now we get to the point where we're going to have a third person or plot device continue to convey this background plot on Bolas and... I don't know how many more of those I can take. <laughs> well, we know they're still going to the grave of Ugin, and we know Ugin has started to reach out to people, because that's how Taijin got involved in this whole thing. So I think it's pretty clear that the last chunk is going to be told by Ugin himself. And that maybe ties to my idea of what funked outside from the Dragon Tempest. Because something that we have not seen, the Scions of Ugin... Are mm. these spectral dragons that were just regular colorless creatures? Six generic mana for a 4 4 flying dragon. They're just kind of Ugin shaped spectral dragon spirits. And I wonder if one of them just kind of pooped out of the sky and flopped down to help protect this band of people. Pooped out of the sky. Because if Ugin is really in tune with this world and is starting to wake up, maybe he realized that the people he has now sent to go see him are being attacked by dragons, and they need a guardian. That would be pretty cool. Would explain why it's a dragon tempest, but also that no one is scared. That one probably is the cleanest explanation, because it gives us Ugin's narrative, which is what we need. We need something planeswalker-wise. We need either Ugin returning to Dominaria, or somebody who is on Dominaria present for Bolas's next chronicle, which might be the Elder Dragon War, but who knows. But yeah, we don't really have much left on Tarkir, because we know Ugin lands there, and we have to get back to Bolas in order for it to be Bolas's story for M19. Presumably Ugin ran into Bolas again, and didn't just decide randomly 18,000 years later to try and kill him. <laughs> so I guess we'll learn more. The question is, are we going to see the Elder Dragon War? I feel like at this point, if you give us the Elder Dragons, and you give us the story 
it would feel really, really wrong if we didn't get the actual Elder Dragon War. We've set up for it. Bolas just had the spat with Chromium. He's talked about getting revenge on Vevictus. He now controls an army of dragon killers with dragon-killing Ballistae. Like, we have to get this Dragon War at this point. What do you think the sides are going to be here? Do you think it's going to be Nicol Bolas and his human dragon-killer armies against his foes? Do you think he's going to try and, like, mesmerize other dragons and bring them to his side? I think it's Bolas versus all. Or I think it's it's Bolas versus the rest of the Elder Dragons. Archenemy Nicol Bolas. Exactly what I was about to say, but <laughs> there you go. So do we think we're going to see the present at all in this story or what Bolas is planning for Ravnica? I think we're past that point. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're three out of eight stories deep. Four out of eight. Four out of eight stories deep halfway through and we still aren't like advanced more than a couple days from the, the start of the first story um, framing wise. I don't think we can catch up in time. And this was something that they had talked about on Weekly MTG a couple weeks ago when they had James Wyatt on. He was talking about how they chose the five planeswalkers for the set, the Ajani, Tezzeret, Liliana, Sarkin, and Vivian as kind of five pies that Bolas had his fingers in. And then he described the story with Ugin as kind of a sixth pie, which implies that the other pies aren't involved in this at all. And then this is its own little pie. So I don't think we're getting any more information about what Bolas is up to in Ravnica. But I think that's okay because we've got three whole sets of story. And two sets before yeah. Bolas showdown to explain what he was doing. Yeah, there's plenty of time to like get stories about Bolas or Ral or Vraska, or Tezzeret, or Liliana, to explain what Bolas's plans are. So this brings me to the last thing I wanted to bring up, is the super subtle Tarkir 2 <laughs> foreshadowing going on in this set. We got a little bit of it last time, at the end of Tarkir, where Narset discovers the Shu Yun's secret uh, Jeskai archive. A lot of people have been looking, reading these stories and going, wow, they're actually setting up maybe stuff for the cons to come back and the Wedge Clans. But go back and look at Dragons of Tarkir, the cards. Go back and read the Dragons of Tarkir stories. They already started setting up every single one of the cons of Tarkir clans to still have a foothold in present-day Tarkir. So that's like already an existing thing. This is, admittedly, bringing a lot of that to the forefront and explaining more about it and right. maybe giving a direct hint into something at the end of this. We still don't know entirely what the upshot of finding Ugin in his grave is going to be for Yasova. Yeah, it feels like one of the outcomes that seems most likely is the clans preparing for something or establishing a more permanent splinter group that is what we saw in Dragons of Tarkir. I think it's interesting because we're four years from Dragons of Tarkir, and they are bringing this plot point back up again. So a lot of times it'll feel like something was seeded in a set, and when we return, like that's just whatever it was was completely ignored because there was another seed that they latched onto. For this to come back around, and for, say, how the Ghostfire Warriors are still alive, how the shamans of the former Temur are still alive, 
I think it's going to be relevant to the the near future, at least. It's interesting to see the M19 story as a whole. It's filling in the blanks in two places. We had a blank spot of pretty much a thousand years between Fate Reforged and Dragons of Tarkir, where we knew how things developed and what they developed into, but we didn't know kind of the finer details of what life was like for the former cons, like Yasova here, right after the dragons had taken over. That's because Dagatar died, and Shuyun died, and... <laughs> Banana Boy died. Why can't Banana I think boy. of his name? <laughs> I can't, yeah, I can't remember. Tassiger. And Tassiger died. The Golden Fang. Well, he, he yeah, he died, but he came, he came a super spiffy necklace. Yeah. Alicia did not die. Got to stick around for quite a while with... I think Alesha's story was one of my favorites because she goes riding after Kolagon and Kolagon basically just doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I love that of the five dragon lords, it's not the red-green one who's the, like, feral one. Like, Atarka eats a lot, but she still speaks and whatnot and gives out edicts. It's Kolagon who, like, doesn't even talk. From the Planeswalker's Guide, they talk about how she just, like, lets out guttural screams and just randomly, like, bathes the ground in lightning and doesn't even, like, talk to dragons or talk to humanoids. She's just, like, this wild, violent killing machine. And the way the Mardu adapt to that is, hope I don't get struck by lightning while I maraud <laughs> in the shadow of these crazy murder dragons. It's like, yep. But getting to fill in the blanks between Fate Reforged and Dragons of Tarkir, and also going back, I don't think you could have talked to anybody a year or two ago and asked them, like, hey, do you think we'll ever just get a pretty detailed recap of the setup and the payoff of the Elder Dragon War in standard storytelling? Nobody would guess that. Like, people know that Bolas is involved. It's just they haven't done something on this large of a scale, and... I don't expect it to be a regular thing. I don't think M20 is going to have the Planeswalker War revealed fully for us <laughs> as so much amazing. as we wish it would be. Maybe um, one day. Exactly, maybe one day. We just need to get an archivist on Karandor to be recapping it from some dead person's memories. So what we need to do is make sure that Ethan is in charge of play design and... <laughs> vision design and on the creative team of like more sets and then we might get it actually get it they were talking about that on the weekly mtg stream that he had scrapped the elder designs and just like wanted to start them over and he packed a lot of flavor into every single one so i still can't get over chromium because it's like the perfectly designed mail card for what it needs to do is this big control finisher with a way to protect itself but it's also the super vorthos card because he Turns into freaking Ham the Tickery Man. Ah, it's great. Or I guess Pregnant Woman now. Various things. He is the mutable. But speaking of filling in the gaps of Tarkir, as like a final note on that is I wonder if, because Ugin doesn't have any memory of his spirit tracking down Sarkin and bringing him from the other timeline to resurrect himself in the past, I wonder if this meeting with Yasova is going to be the start of a way to do that. Yeah, that's good. What if this is the point where the unconscious Ugin psychically reaches out and plants the seed of whatever gets Sarkin to fix stuff? 
because we have no explanation for that either. Shamans are what originally sent Sarkon on his path, basically as a planeswalker. In the Tarkir story, we learn that they had had whispers about him from somewhere and basically knew he was a planeswalker and had a destiny. And so I wonder if this will conclude with Yasova's shaman daughter sending that message to the alternate timeline or something and closing the loop there. Ugin needs to be saved to keep the balance of Tarkir, because if he dies, the dragons die and the whole world starts to fall apart. If he stays alive and can't manage it, the dragons take over and balance falls apart. <laughs> Maybe the Ugin that has been summoning them is the Ugin in the Hedron that Sarkhan used there. I mean, we didn't really hear from that one again when he traveled into the past, but I wonder if that spirit is kind of imbued and is what was restoring Ugin in the big Hedron cocoon that appears around him. I guess we'll see. This is getting, this is getting really timey-wimey. Okay, so last thoughts. My deepest hope for the blue-red artifacts deck is that it is, in fact, the Sahili and the Doretti on Kaladesh artwork we've seen. I don't know how realistic that is, but that is kind of what I want deep in my soul. And if the Bant Enchantments deck isn't Sarah on the 25th anniversary of Magic, it's probably going to be one of the biggest flavor misses ever, the biggest whiffs ever. All right, Andrew, less thoughts. We have a Patreon, which we introduced last week. So if you are interested in helping support the show, we've got right now a $1 and $5 monthly tiers that have some fancy rewards for you. So just head over to www.patreon.com slash thevorthoscast and help support our show. Glory to the cat bug. Yes, thank you, Kabori, for being our domineering overseer now. Um, <laughs> thanks to everyone who's helped donate so far. Thanks for everyone who's listening even if you haven't donated, we appreciate all our fans and everyone who wants to get some more fun Vorthos knowledge. All right, Carrie, last thoughts. Since it's just you and Andrew here, I figured I can tell you some kind of internal knowledge. I actually know the finale to the M19 story. Give it to us. Yasova gets to the grave of the spirit dragon after being led there by how many different, you know, people who were led there by Ugin as well. And a hand busts through the hedron, and that just lifts a middle finger to her, and that's the end. <laughs> you helped Bolas defeat me. I just wanted to bring you here, give you a little, give you a little going away gift. <laughs> All right, thank you for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.